on the insert in your bulletin from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Advent um, is a word that's used in the church calendar uh, to refer to the weeks leading up to to the celebration of Christmas. And Advent in particular refers to the anticipated coming of Jesus into the world. And so for the past few weeks, we've been considering uh, together the hope and the promise of Christmas. And we're asking this question, what does it practically mean for us? That Jesus came into the world, that the word became flesh. And so far, we've looked together at the hope and the promise of rest and the hope and the promise of satisfaction. And this morning, we're looking at this passage in Ephesians that we read earlier to consider together the hope and promise of peace. Um, You know, in the book of Ephesians, this little section of verses that we're looking at together this morning, uh, they're really a big deal. Um, one author writes that these verses are the key and the high point of the whole letter of Ephesians. Um, another author refers to these verses as the fundamental theological undergirding of the whole letter. And perhaps, he says, the most significant ecclesiological or the theology of the church text in the entire New Testament. Um, in other words, this passage is kind of a big deal. Um, this is the heart and guts of what Paul has to say about the church. And from this passage, I want us to consider this morning together the hope and the promise of peace. You know, if you um, if you're out shopping and you go to Kroger or wherever you do your grocery shopping and you walk up to the cash register ready to pay for your groceries and you hand that guy or girl, man or woman that's working the cash register, you hand them your $20 bill or anything higher, you you know what's going to happen. That person working the cash register, they're going to get out that little magic pen that they have and draw a line on your bill. Or if they don't do that, they're going to hold it up to the light um, and look at that bill. And what they're doing, we, we all know, um, 
They're looking to make sure that bill is an authentic bill, that it's genuine, that it's not a counterfeit, right? Um, I'm assuming, I've never seen the magic pen work, but I'm assuming it'll change a color if you're uh, peddling counterfeit bills or something. Um, I did see one guy get busted when it didn't pass the light test, and that was pretty cool. Um, but uh, but here, here's the simple point. That, that person working the cash register, right, they want to make sure that that bill is the real thing, that it's the genuine article, right? They're checking for proof that it's authentic and real. For the Apostle Paul here, the proof, the authentic proof, of the, of the gospel is that people who could not get along are now getting along because of Jesus. He is saying you hold this, pe- this community, this people up to the light. And Paul is saying this unique community that's made up of wildly different people living in peace is authentic proof that gospel power has been unleashed in the world. This is the proof that Jesus came into the world and he turned it upside down or he turned it right side up, depending on how you look at it. See, Jesus came and he came with the hope and the promise of peace, right? Paul is talking here about real significant power, right? Power that bursts through barriers, as we'll see in this passage, and knocks down walls and abolishes laws and and the law and its regulations. A power that creates what Paul is saying here. A power that creates a new humanity living in peace. But here's the deal. As soon as I say this, almost all of us, a cynicism in your heart and mind rises to the surface because we think, yeah, we've been waiting to see this forever, a people living in peace. And we have been disappointed again and again and again. And for some of us, we might even be scared to admit it out loud, but we have stopped believing in the power of the gospel to really create this kind of peace. And this morning, I want us to look at this passage. And for those of us who claim to be Christians, I want us to rediscover our belief in the power of the gospel, what it practically means for us that Jesus came into the world. And for those of you this morning who find yourselves either unsure of what you believe or or struggling to believe the gospel, I want you this morning to get a taste of the radical hope that Christmas brings, that the gospel brings to us living in peace together. And so here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to approach this passage this morning. I want to say, this is my statement. To realize the power of the gospel to create peace in people, we have to do three things. We have to remember something, we have to rest in someone, and we have to practice something. So first, you need to remember something. You see, in verse 11 and in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uses that very word, remember. And what Paul is telling us to remember in verses 11 through 13, if you look at it, he is telling us to remember our identity, who we were and who we are. Right. And please pay close attention to this up front to what I'm about to say. You're doing, you know, the things you do, your actions or your behavior, your speech, your motivations, whatever you're doing always proceeds or flows out of your being, who you are, your identity. 
See, all of us in this room this morning, all of us in this room necessarily have something in our lives that we are looking to for our identity. This is really, really important because as much as we want to believe that we're autonomous people, right, that we shape and define our own realities, the truth is that everything you say and everything you think and everything you do flows out of your identity. It's a product of your identity, who you understand yourself to be at any given moment. You and I never speak. We never act and we never think out, you know, in a vacuum. Paul is writing to the Ephesians. This, it's a group of Gentile Christians. And twice in verse 11 and 12, he says, remember. And instead of getting real detailed with everything that he says in those verses, Paul is basically saying this. You can look at those verses. He is saying, remember that you were spiritually homeless. Right? You are completely disjointed. You are completely out of place and cut off. You are strangers to the law and the promises. He says, you are a ship at sea without a rudder, Paul is saying. You are separate from Jesus, not citizens, without hope and without God, he says. And then in verse 13, Paul jumps from the past, who you were, to the present, who you are now. Verse 13, he says, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. See, you are outsiders. You are strangers. You are homeless. But through the blood of Jesus, you have come all the way in. You have come home in Jesus, is what he is saying. Now, you put all that together and Paul is saying, you need to remember in order to get your bearings in this life. You need to think this stuff out. You need to reflect on this. This is who you are. This is your story. This is the narrative that defines you. You are lost, but found. You are outsiders, but you have come all the way in. You are homeless, but you have come home in Jesus. You know, you can forget any other application right now. It is your identity that needs to get settled. And that's why Paul starts here. When that gets settled, the application becomes very, very obvious. You know, I've told you this before, and I was sharing it with someone just this past week, but my mom's father is, uh, is now living with my parents uh, and he, because he is suffering from dementia. And, you know, a lot of you have, have gone through this with loved ones in your own families. And, and I hope by bringing this up, I'm not triggering too much pain for you because it is a very, very painful thing to watch, right? I, I mean, it, to look at it is... So incredibly heartbreaking to see someone who has completely lost their bearings. I mean, when we're at home with my grandfather, it's so heartbreaking that the only thing you can do is laugh at the situation sometimes. It's that painful. You know, I've gone home to visit, and in the, in the space of a couple of days, my grandfather will ask me a hundred times who I am. There's no idea, Right? Sometimes he will ask me who I am and not a full 60 seconds will go by before he asks me who I am again. Right. He's constantly asking questions over and over again in my sitting in that chair, his chair in our in our living room at home. He's saying, what day is it? Do I live here? You know, who are you? How old am I? Do I have a wife? He constantly asking these questions. Here's my point. He is constantly grasping for his bearings. 
you and I rightly look at that and it breaks our hearts. I mean, it is so incredibly sad, so unbelievably painful to watch that kind of breakdown, that kind of disorientation, that kind of lostness, that kind of wondering without a rudder. Let me shift this on you a bit. Why does Paul keep telling Christians, Gentile Christians, to remember? It's because he knows that you and I are prone to spiritual dementia. That we are prone to forget. That we are prone to wonder. Prone to forget who we are because he knows that though we have come home in Jesus, though we've been brought all the way in, we are still prone to losing our bearings. And let me tell you, when you do lose your bearings in Jesus, you, are all, you cannot speak, act, or think out of, out of a vacuum. You will be grasping for some kind of identity factor. At any, you will be grasping at anything and everything within your reach to tell you who you are and to tell you that you matter and to tell you that you are valued and to tell you that you have purpose. Paul says the first thing you have to do is to remember Jesus came into this world to settle your identity, to give you an identity. Remember, he is saying, who you are in Jesus. Now, second, in verses 14 through 18, Paul is telling us that we're to find rest in someone. And here I want us to take us a little bit deeper into this identity thing. See, really, verses 14 through 18, are, they're a further description of what Paul said in verse 13, that we've been brought near through the blood of Christ. But here's how I want to help us think about it. Back in verse 11, Paul tells us that the Jewish people, right, the circumcision, he calls them. They were calling the Gentiles the uncircumcised. You know what the Jewish people were doing to the Gentiles when they were calling them the uncircumcised? They were, they were name-calling, is what they were. Now, it's very sophisticated theological name-calling, but really it's just name-calling. That's what it is, right? And I, I want to ask you this. How do they... Or how did they, or how do we, how does anyone get to a place where they label individuals or a group of individuals and begin to treat them as entirely inferior? You know, that's a good question because like we've already said, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It flows out of an identity. And I want to tell you how this works and how it works in your life. We latch onto something about ourselves, or about a group, a group that we're a part of that we think is admirable, right? And it becomes our identity. And for the Jewish people in this passage, it was their nationality, their possession of the law and the promises, and the ceremonies like circumcision. And that identity, the way you bolster that identity, is by treating everyone who doesn't possess those same traits as beneath you and inferior. You know, in Memphis, you pro in 2013... You probably don't do this with the Old Testament ceremonies. Um, but we grasp and latch on to, for our identity, all kinds of things. Where we went to school, what neighborhood we live in, our salaries, right? Our race, how we educate our children, what style of worship we prefer, where your family is from, your political persuasion. And pretty soon you catch yourself saying or maybe even just thinking in terms of an us versus them world, right? a little name calling, even if it's just in your mind, right? And you begin to think they are what's wrong with this country. 
They are what's wrong with the church today. Right? You know, they don't care for their children like we do. They, they, they. You know, and you extrapolate that line a little bit, and you can trace it all the way through holocausts and genocides and terrorism and racism. And it all starts with you and me grasping for our identity. That's how it works. But now what in the world does all this have to do with the second point? That you need to find rest in someone. Please listen closely to me for the next few minutes. I'm going to throw a lot at you uh, in a short amount of time. But we have to see how all this fits together. What, we, what I'm suggesting to you is that what we're really grasping for when we latch on to these identity factors in our lives is we are grasping for peace. Right? Just a glance at verses 14 through 18 will tell you that, that peace, both explicitly and implicitly, it dominates that section of verses. But the peace in view is more than just a cessation of hostility, right? Let me read you a brief quote from one author. It's not surprising that Paul summarizes the gospel by saying Christ is our peace. Peace is not merely the cessation of hostility. It is a comprehensive term for salvation and life with God. The background of this use is in the Old Testament concept of shalom, which covers wholeness, physical well-being, prosperity, security, good relations, and integrity. It is much more positive than merely the absence of conflict. And that's why Paul talks about Jesus at the cross, both putting to death hostility and also creating a whole new man, as he puts it. Paul is saying that when you cling to Jesus, when Jesus becomes your identity, when you rest in him for your identity, he removes every basis for hostility and he makes you into a new creation. See, the dividing wall that gets mentioned in verse 14 is literally in the Greek, the dividing wall of hatred. And when Paul wrote this, He had a very literal wall in mind, right? It's the wall that's in the temple that separated the Jews from the Gentiles, right? Gentiles couldn't go all the way into the temple, right? They had to stay out in the court of the Gentiles. And see, the Jewish people, they had all these things that we mentioned earlier, right? The law, citizenship, the covenants of promise, and and so on. But they also had grasping hearts like you and me. And like us, they took what was good. And when they attached their identity to it, it became for them a basis for hate, for division and separation. And Paul is saying that when you realize that Jesus came and died in your place for your hatred, right? That's what he He put to death hostility in his death. Verse 17 or 16, I think. You know, when you get that, Paul is saying, you realize that he made completely and entirely irrelevant all those distinctions you cling to for your identity and thereby thereby look down on others. He came to reconcile both Jew and Gentile through the cross, verse 16. Both those far away and those near, verse 17. Paul is saying the ground at the foot of the cross, it is completely level. Righteous, unrighteous, moral, amoral, Jew, Gentile, Republican, Democrat, private schooler, homeschooler. All are standing on equal equal footing, Paul is saying. Why? Because in Jesus, the basis of your identity is not in your performance, not in your race, not in your ideology. It is grounded in the sheer grace and mercy of God. 
And what is the effect of all of this, right? Paul says it is the creation of a new man. And what he's saying there, he's talking about a new ethnicity. He is talking about a new third race. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is, and this is his illustration. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. I think this is very good application for Southerners like us, right? Because you need to, you need to be reminded that Jesus did not come into this world to make you more polite and to make you nicer and to improve you. It, to make you more refined, to make you more conservative, to make you more traditional, whatever. He came into this world to create a brand new humanity in himself. You can find rest in him, Paul is saying. A friend of mine, I, I've used this illustration a, a number of times, but a friend of mine told me about how he was in Walmart one Saturday morning. And as he was going about his business, doing his shopping, one aisle over he heard blood-curdling screams of a child coming from one aisle over. And, and if you've ever been in Walmart, that's not, that's not very unusual. Um, you know, and, and what he expected when he rounded the corner was to see the typical, a child throwing a fit because his parent wouldn't let him have this toy or this candy or, or whatever. But when he turned the corner, what he saw was a child who is crying and panicked because he had gotten separated from his mother. And he was all alone. And so he stood there watching, trying to figure out what he was supposed to do in this situation. And he said, in the next moment, the mother came running around the the other end of the aisle and scooped this child up into her arms. And he said, the fascinating thing about that scene as I watched it, he said, was within 30 seconds, that child went from just maddening screams and crying within 30 seconds to being fast asleep. In his mother's arms. When you come home. In the arms of Jesus. Resting in his life. His death. And his resurrection for you. You come all the way home. Made whole and at peace. You know in the middle of a forgotten field. In the stillness of night. Right. The shepherds. They were watching over their flocks. Right. And the quiet and the stillness of that night, it was shattered by a multitude of angels who showed up to those shepherds and they were proclaiming a savior that has been born. Right. Christ, the Lord, has been born. And do you remember what the angels sang to those shepherds that night? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Jesus came to make peace between you and your maker. He came to scoop you up into his arms and to bring you home, not because of your performance, not because of your ideology, not because of your race or whatever, but because of who Jesus was and what Jesus did in your place. And Paul is saying that the implications of this are this, that you are finally free. And you are finally free to rest You are finally free to stop grasping at anything and everything for your identity. And when you do that, Paul is saying, you have come into a new humanity. And you can now finally, resting in Jesus, live at peace with others in your life. Okay, finally, this last point. We have to practice something. 
How does all of this stuff shake out in our lives? See, in verses 19 through 22, Paul uses some metaphors to describe the church, right? I think that's pretty obvious. But I think the metaphors that he chooses, they're meant to be more than just descriptive. In other words, I think what Paul is doing here is he's giving us hints about the life we are supposed to live together. All right, here are the metaphors of the images. There are three of them that Paul uses in these verses, right? Paul talks about how the about the church, and he says the church is made up of fellow citizens, right? And then he talks about the church as a household. And then he talks about the stones of a temple being indwelt by God himself. And here's what I'm trying to get you to see in this last point. As one author points out, each metaphor that Paul picks up and uses, it narrows the circle of intimacy. He's saying it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. So think about it. Fellow citizens, right? They are bound by their citizenship, but they might live hundreds of miles away from one another. They might live in another state altogether. But if you live in the same house, it gets tighter, right? You're separated by just a matter of a few feet from other people. You're very, very close. But this final circle, right? Your stones in a building, Paul says, you're even closer because stones in a building, they're cemented to one another, joint to joint, right? Let me take a stab at giving you a few progressive points of application so you can think about it. First, if you're a Christian, I ask you this, are you friends with other Christians who are very, very different from you? You know, I am blessed to be an American citizen, as as are many of you, who hold to the same, you, you, you know, who hold to the same positions. Uh, well, we we are members of uh, we are fellow citizens as Americans. I'm getting so lost in my words here. But listen, we're separated by a number of different things. Right. And if you're only friends with people in the church who hold to the same positions to the same political views, to the same socioeconomic status or race as you. Paul is saying you're not living as fellow citizens. You need to go back and remember and rest. Jesus, the gospel, needs to be the foundation for your identity. And therefore, it binds you to people who are very, very different from you. Now, second, the big problem, you know, as we narrow the circle a little bit, the big problem with living in a household, right, is the complete absence of privacy. I don't know about you, but for me, this was the biggest incentive and greatest motivating factor for me to graduate high school and go go to college. I mean, I I grew up with uh, two sisters and a brother, and I never had a moment to myself. I wanted to get away so that I could have a moment of privacy. In a home, you do everything together, right? You you eat together, you talk, you you argue, you share space, you share money, you work together, you play together, you do everything together. Together, if Jesus has reconciled all of us to God and therefore to one another as a family, Paul is saying it should infringe upon your privacy. You should feel it pinch, right? It should be costly to you financially. It should be costly to you emotionally. It should be costly to you physically. Are you practicing opening up your life and sharing space in your life with other Christians? You know, the other thing that comes to mind for me when I think about families is transparency. You know, I have some friends who have seen me at extremely low points in my life, but no one has seen me at my worst like my family has seen me at my worst. 
right? You, you may look nice to a lot of people in your life, but your family, they know what a jerk you really are, right? In, in Christian community, we don't just need others to see our pretend niceness on Sunday mornings. We need to be transparent about our faults and our flaws as well. And I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't be careful about this. But if no one else here knows your secrets or knows your fears or knows your temptations, you need to go back and remember and rest in Jesus, right? Because most likely, if you're not able to be transparent with others, it's because something other than Jesus and his grace is forming your identity and you're afraid so afraid that that identity factor will be threatened if you're transparent. But don't you see, if your identity is untouchably secure in Jesus, Paul says, you're finally free to be this open with others. And finally, I want to get real narrow here. We, we have often made a big mistake in wedding our individualistic, privatized Western culture to Christianity. And it's brought an awful lot of dysfunction into our Christian practice. And I know I'm opening a huge can of worms here, but listen, whenever you start thinking Christianity is a private individual thing, just me and Jesus, you have left the Bible's understanding of Christianity. You just think about this imagery here in this passage. It's beautiful, right? A temple where Paul is saying we are the stones that go, we are the stones that go to make up that temple. But do you realize this in this metaphor? God does not come down and indwell individual stones. That's not the metaphor. He comes down into the temple of stones. And what I am saying is this. You cannot know Jesus by yourself. You simply cannot the way you deepen your intimacy with Jesus is by deepening your intimacy with other Christians. By doing a life with Christians who are very, very different from you. By sharing space with other Christians. And by being transparent with other Christians. Okay, final thing I have, that I have to hit before we end. And I know you're cold. My hands are freezing up here. Um, in this last image, Paul says that this temple and household... It's built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. And he's basically referring to the teaching of the Bible. And then it says in verse 20, right? In verse 20, that in this building, in this building, Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone in ancient buildings was the foundation stone, right? It was the primary, primary load-bearing stone in buildings. But it did more than just bear weight. When you set that cornerstone in place, that cornerstone determined every line of that building. Every stone was stacked in relation to that cornerstone. In other words, it could be said this. The whole building existed in that cornerstone. And all of a sudden, we're right back to this idea of identity. How do you relate to the cornerstone? That's the question. Because that determines everything. Your doing always proceeds from your being. You never speak, think, or act in a vacuum. Your life is shaped by the cornerstone. And Paul is saying, this person, Jesus, he is the one cornerstone that can actually hold your life together. He is the one cornerstone that can create an entirely new humanity. He is the one cornerstone that can bring real practical peace into our lives. 
And it's a genius image, illustration, metaphor, whatever for Paul to use. But, you know, Paul is a very good preacher. And if you don't know this about good preachers, good preachers really know how to steal from other preachers. That's what preachers do. In case you didn't know. Um, Where did this image that Paul picks up here come from? God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, told us of the promised one that he was going to send into the world. And this is what God said. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 118, the psalmist looking forward to Jesus, he wrote this stone, the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. What were they looking forward to? What was Isaiah looking forward to? What was the psalmist looking forward to? They were looking forward to the promise and hope of peace that would come through the cornerstone. He came and he was rejected in your place. This cornerstone became, listen, he became, all those things we talked about earlier in the passage, he became the alien. He became the outsider. He became the foreigner. He became the stranger for you. He was rejected. He was cast outside the city and crucified outside the city. In order to bring you all the way in. When Jesus becomes our cornerstone, our identity. I am telling you, when that happens, the world will see the power of the gospel unleashed in a new humanity. Living in peace because we are united together in Jesus. You know, Christmas right around the corner. Give yourself time this Christmas season to get your bearings. To remember your identity. To rest in Jesus and to practice moving toward one another in Jesus. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is clear unlike my stammering tongue. And we pray that you would take your word and that you would drive it deep into our hearts. Father, remind us of who we are in Jesus. In reminding us of who we are in Jesus, give us the rest for which our hearts were made. Bring us home in Jesus, we pray. And Father, I pray for us that we would, by your Spirit, Work out the implications of this great truth that Jesus came into the world to bring peace. Father, work it out in our lives as we move towards one another. As we rest in Jesus and we move towards one another in sharing financially, emotionally, and physically with one another. As we move towards one another in transparency. Father, as we move towards one another in deeper and deeper intimacy that we might know you better and better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.